0: don't believe i always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more this is superstitious logic it's pure ideology you know this ecological bullshit like
1: uh... hello welcome to the end of the world this is anthropocene's episode 29 and today we are doing uh, kind of an impromptu entry into our anthropocene Autory theory series so this will be Uh, Anthropocene Auteur Theory number five with the the, the one the only Wes Anderson
0: Wesley Granderson
1: Wesley Granderson Uh, and Wes Anderson very well known I think he's by far the most well known uh, auteur director that we've done like maybe Clint Eastwood because he's been around forever but uh, you know uh, Anderson is huge he's been nominated for multiple Oscars never won um most of his movies are very well received i was kind of shocked for some reason i didn't know this but apparently the life aquatic is his is the movie of his that people seem to like the least which is weird to me because it's one of my favorites
0: well i think that one did the worst in the in a commercial sense because he had the sort of uh <clears throat> cultural currency coming off of royal tenenbaums he was like a a hot new director you know and then he made this weird fucking you know fairly big budget movie and everyone was like what the fuck is this um, and so again it's the issue of like more people hate that movie because way more people saw that movie
1: yeah and i have the the box office numbers in front of me and it seems like his only two uh, kind of flops, financially speaking, Warrior, Bottle Rocket, and Life Aquatic. And Bottle Rocket, obviously, because it's his first, and he's kind of an unknown quantity at that point.
0: How much but did it make in the theater?
1: Life Aquatic. Uh, Bottle Rocket. Uh, according to this, $560,000.
0: I was going to oh. say, I, I've always heard the budget was $5 million.
1: This says seven, but... Oh, really? But I, I don't, like I said, I don't know how how accurate this is. And then, like, even the Darjeeling Limited made a pretty sizable profit, even though it's one of, I think, one of his weaker <clears throat> movies. Yeah,
0: I agree. Um, that one, that was one, like, when I, that one came out right when I first really started to get into Wes Anderson. And so I, I, there's, I have a soft spot for it. Um, but, Having just like I said, binged uh, all of his movies in the last like three or four days. That one, uh, that one's missing a little something. I don't know what it is, but it's it's not as uh, moving as some of the other ones.
1: Yeah, which is weird because it's pretty heavy tone wise compared to the other ones. Yeah, it's one of his more
0: adult films. You know, uh, he he sort of vacillates between you know making movies that kind of have mature themes and making movies that are just kind of nostalgia based. And uh, I mean, there's still interesting, good things to find in, in them, but some, just some of them have more weight to them than others.
1: Yeah. It, I was, um, before we do an episode like this, I'll watch uh, like YouTube analyses by random people who were talking about a, a movie or a director or whatever. And when I was looking at before this, uh, the guy was talking about how uh, everyone thinks about the visual style of Wes Anderson. They think about the the sort of bright, sort of pastel colors and all the sort of nostalgic stuff and the the uh, the framing, the the symmetrical the framing, yeah. and uh, yep. the tracking shots and all that. Which is you know it's all there and it's all very distinct, distinctly him. But they were making this point that what really makes it a Wes Anderson movie is the way it's written, sort of the narrative flow of it and the dialogue and the, the delivery of lines and all that kind of stuff. More so than the
0: look. Even those things are stylistic. You know, I I'd say what maybe that makes it a Wes Anderson movie, but what makes these movies good movies is that they have a lot of, they have a lot to say. There's a lot going on. And, and and I think he's right to point out that in, in a lot of cases Discussions of Wes Anderson's movies style eclipses substance, but yeah. but I I do think there is substance to these movies, yeah.
1: which is a shame because like you're saying, uh, his films are very kind of rich when you think about them beyond just the the visual styling of it, and all of them pretty much are are pretty dark in subject matter.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, sometimes more obviously than others. Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, or you know at the very least it's like so like Rushmore it's it it doesn't seem that dark but it is about this very kind of like sad young man whose mother has died and he has these delusions of grandeur and all that kind of stuff Um, coupled with Bill Murray's character whose life is kind of falling apart and he's decided that he doesn't like the person he is and all that sort of stuff right Um, and just thinking of the, the the kind of famous pull scene where he's just sitting by the pool smoking and throwing golf balls into the pool. <laughs> yes. In uh, <and> his <laughs> and Budweiser then, shorts. And then uh, Max asks uh,
0: Miss Cross why she doesn't want to be with him, Mr. Bloom. And she says, number one, he's married. Number two, he hates himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, and, and like a lot of comedy comes from that. But at the same time, it's it's pretty sad at kind of at its core yeah um so yeah
0: these these movies are all kind of hard to classify um uh, certainly certainly comedies I think is maybe the most uh, popular genre that he works in and maybe the only genre that he will be you know if you go to the video store if those still exist uh he's going to be in the uh comedy section mostly but uh there's the comedy comes, like you say, from a, a pretty dark place. Usually,
1: yeah. And so, to sort of get into why we would do this when it, it's not immediately as evident as the other uh, directors that we've looked at, um, I think maybe a good place to start for that will be with Grand Budapest Hotel. Even though sure. it's not his first chronologically, it's like so. It's from twenty fourteen. It's his what seventh, eighth? I think his eighth movie. Uh, because the new one that's coming out will be the 10th, I think. Uh, okay. So, pretty far along his trajectory, it's by far his most successful film. It uh, was nominated for Best Picture, unless I'm was mistaken. It, is, it,
0: is it really his most successful? Uh,
1: financially speaking, yes. Wow. Like, I would have guessed, guessed
0: Royal Tenenbaums.
1: <laughs> uh, well, according to, to what I'm looking at, so Tenenbaums, on a budget of 21, made $71.4 million. Grand Budapest Hotel on a budget of twenty five million made one hundred seventy five million. Wow! Um, so. Yeah, I, I'm I'm glad to hear that because
0: I th- I think Grand Budapest is is maybe his. Uh, it's hard to pick a favorite, you know, but mm-hmm. I it's maybe his most
1: mature
0: movie. Yeah, and
1: it's uh, his only uh, his only Oscar nominations for Best Picture and Best Director were for. I was going to say, Grand I think Budapest. I think several of them have been nominated for screenplays. Yeah, that that's like the thing he usually gets uh, nominated yeah. for. Or like like of Dogs was best animated <laughs> Isle of Dogs did, and Mister Fant- or uh, Fantastic Mister Fox. Uh,
0: does uh, Grand Buddha did Grand Budapest have a screenplay nomination? Yes, for adapted screenplay.
1: Uh, original. Really? Yeah, I guess, it's, uh, it's, although it is. It's based
0: sort of, on uh, Impatience of the Heart by Stefan Zweig, I believe.
1: Yeah, but. Weird. I, I guess they didn't. <laughs> I guess it wasn't close enough of a narration. They adaptation. didn't catch that, I guess. Yeah, uh, <laughs> even though it's the, the closing title. But uh, what I was going to say is because the uh,
0: narration in Grand Budapest Hotel is some of the best I've ever heard in a movie. It is just so clever and. And Jude Law especially does a great job of, of delivering it. Um, yeah.
1: yeah. Well, uh, let's sort of start there with the, the kind of narrative structure of it. Uh, because, you know, I'd seen this movie before and I'm a big fan of it. But for some reason this time it just kind of struck me differently. Because uh, we have what kind of amounts to three different layers of narration going on. Um, so yeah. you have the, the writer in old age. You have Jude Law, which is like the writer as a younger age, and then you have Mustafa telling what is basically the story that we get through most of the film, the kind of core story of uh, Gustav and, and all this stuff. Um, and it's just sort of an interesting look at, I guess, creativity or uh, the creative person, especially I'm thinking of when uh, Jude Law as the young writer gets to. The Grand Best Hotel, and he's he's describing um, kind of the the clientele there and how they're all very yeah. sort of secluded, solitary. Yeah. yeah, and they keep to themselves and sort of do their own thing. You get like a lady alone in like the baths, like painting it or whatever. Um, so it, it was just sort of interesting to see that kind of creativity, which is kind of a very old idea of what it means to be a, a writer or an artist, is that you're sort of alone sort of combating with yourself in the world and taking traveling in. all over taking notes yeah yeah, exactly and that even at the end of the film uh when you know jude law and f murray abraham are kind of going their separate ways uh he's like i would never see the grand budapest hotel again because i would go to latin america and, and do all this sort of stuff mm-hmm. um yeah so it's just it, it's very it, that part is interesting partly because it's so kind of enchanting that movie is kind of enchanting of like a like a european city in the 30s and there's this weird sort of like i don't know excitement i get from looking at it uh, yeah you know, trolley cars and stuff like that
0: yeah i think i think we, uh, you and i uh may be predisposed to um uh, identify and, and maybe this is the intention you know of anderson but to identify with Jude Law's character. Uh, be, uh, he is sort of the entry point. Uh, and even though, uh, you know, Ralph Fiennes' Gustav H. is the, you might call the main character of the movie, uh, it, it really feels like uh, Jude Law's character's movie. Like this is sort of his story. He is the one who seems to have changed the most by the end of the movie um, because he's talking about his, you know, the the symptoms of his own medical condition at the time were, you know, depression and uh, so, yeah, but you're right. There is something sort of enchanting about it. And for the record, I kind of like that old school notion of the writer as a, traveling solitary figure, uh, as opposed to the, I don't know, um, stationary solitary figure of today.
1: Yeah. Um, and you get that kind of, uh, it's interesting to think about, you know, Gustav's story only coming down kind of third hand, I guess, or at least second hand, because it's being told by zero you know, as an old man, to the writer who is then writing it, and, and then, then the girl, yes, yeah, in the, in the original
0: frame narrative. Yeah. So, so what to me? What's so brilliant about the frame narrative, which he, you know, Anderson uses in most of the movies. I think Bottle Rocket may be the only one that he doesn't uh, use some sort of you know framing narrative. But to me, what's so uh, smart about the Grand Budapest one is that it includes us, the viewer sort of implicitly like, so the oldest story is Gustav H. Uh, and then, uh, zero has a sort of first-hand account through the, the elder zero F Murray Abraham, who is telling it to the younger writer. I can't remember the character's name. Uh, and then the older writer, Tom Wilkinson, uh, is i guess finishing the book that was spawned from this narrative told to him by f Murray abraham's character Uh, and then that book is being read by a young girl and and i think most people stop there but i to me what's so smart about it is that then we the viewer are uh watching the movie of the little girl reading the book of the story that was told twice removed you know that sort of thing so like we're part of this in a way yeah i think i think is 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 a suggestion that the the multi-layered frame narrative suggests
1: yeah so it ends up being kind of an explosion of imagination more or less of like what it is to experience a story on all of these different levels because it's ultimately at every level there well at least maybe not in like the the gustav level but every other level it's a sort of being told a story is the thing that's happening is the action and reacting to it
0: yeah and that i think the the (laughs) the thrice removal of (laughs) of the viewer from the main story of gustav age it in a lot of ways justifies the kind of goofy exaggerated fake you know, set pieces because, uh, I remember when, when, uh, F Murray Abraham starts to tell his story, he says, everything, uh, that I tell, no, 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 it's it's uh, Tom Wilkinson. He said, everything that I tell you was related to me exactly as I have put it down, you know, exactly as I say it. Yeah. And of course we're told this, you know, preposterous story where, where the visuals are are completely exaggerated, and, and you know, they, there's a scene where they're going down a ski slope. You know, <laughs> yes. it's just like there's no way this is what happened. But it's it's like it's like the game of telephone. You know, where like at each removal, the truth you know bends a little bit more. Um, yeah. And and so the frame narrative kind of justifies the kind of goofy nature of the gustav age story
1: yeah and all of those set pieces um that happen in that sort of you know core area of the story are you know beautiful and are kind of wes anderson at his most wes andersony yeah Uh, when you have the the was it the funicular thing yeah rails that goes up and and everything is a pastel color and you have you know the mendels bakery with like the cakes that are like a foot tall just all that kind of stuff and i I think about like the uh the escape from the prison Mm -hmm. um specifically the scene where it's the like bunk room for all the guards and they're like climbing on the pipes and like jumping over the beds and stuff (laughs) right and it's very you see the the shadows of their feet like swinging by which is it's like completely ridiculous but it also has this, like everything else in the film, it has this kind of layer of sort of seriousness underneath it, right? So you have the guy that like drops down and kills all the guards. And it's a very like, we don't see it happen, but we see sort of the, the very violent end of it where he's like stabbing the guard as the guard is stabbing him. Yeah. Um, and it's like played for laughs. You know, Gustav's like, I guess you would call that a draw. <laughs>
0: I suppose you'd call that a draw. <laughs> and
1: it's just very, but, you know, at the core of it, it's like this was a very violent escape from a prison. Um, so it's just, I don't know. And then he gets out and gets his, uh, oh, what's the? Oh, Panache. What's the, yeah, this, was it like Jardu Panache or whatever it is? Yeah. Man, that's one of my favorite
0: scenes when he is he starts to insult Zero for, not bringing his disguise and not bringing his panache. And, um, and so he starts getting racist, you know, and, and <laughs> criticizing him because he's a, an immigrant. And then he's, you know, sort of curiously says, why would you come to this country? Even though he's known this guy for, you know, however long, and he's never asked him about his like status in the country. Mm-hmm. And, and he explains to him that, you know, his family was killed by this militia. And, and then when the, the, the moment when Gustav starts piecing this together and he's like, oh, I guess you're sort of more of a refugee then, yes? <laughs> uh, and then when he realizes he has to like take back everything he's said, he's like, I'm a goddamn selfish bastard. <laughs> <laughs> he just starts criticizing himself so heavily. It's, uh, it's a great moment.
1: Yeah, and, and that kind of gets at, I think, the, the core of why we wanted to talk about the movie in the first place um, is this idea of, of sort of decorum or, you know, dignity, maintaining some sort of connection to um, a kind of, uh, I, I don't even know, like, civilization's the wrong word here, uh, but maintaining that kind of uh, elegance and decorum and, and dignity and, and uh, hospitality in the face of, uh, just extreme living conditions.
0: Uh, Gustav H calls it, uh, and zero then later, I think says faint glimmers of humanity. Um, and then,
1: and then he calls,
0: what does he say? Faint glimmers of humanity on this. I don't know what it is. Uh, and he sustains the illusion with a marvelous grace. Um, But yeah, it's it's dignity in the face of like degradation and um, making a conscious choice to sort of be in control of how you sort of how you handle yourself in the face of conditions that will invite pessimism and nihilism and and all, you know, all that kind of thing, which which I definitely think is a, a huge issue right now specifically as it relates to climate change and uh you know we always find a way to refer back to uh first reformed Mm -hmm. but but the sort of nihilism pessimism um um giving up that we can associate with the character of michael in first reformed is is in a lot of ways what the character of gustav h stands as a sort of uh rebuttal against you know because i because you get the impression and, and again grand budapest is not about climate change but it is about a declining culture yes um and and you get the impression that gustav h is is just as aware as as anyone including you know michael in first reformed of you know the dire circumstances of his culture and yet he chooses to sustain the illusion with a marvelous grace as opposed to, you know, fucking kill himself.
1: Yeah, Um, and he does have his vices, namely uh, old women, or, you know, (laughs) older women. He's very into uh, the sort of, like, uh, aging countesses and that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, I found the quote, by the way. What do you got? So it says, You see, there are still faint glimmers of civilization left in this barbaric slaughterhouse that was once known as humanity. And that's that great part where he says, "Indeed, that's what we provide in our own modest, humble, insignificant." Oh fuck it! Oh fuck it! <laughs> yeah, that's at the beginning, yeah. but then Zero quotes him at the end sincerely. Yeah, as a kind of eulogy for him. Uh, yeah, kind of in in the time where he's te- you know telling his story to the to the writer, and he gets to the part where that you know they take him, drag him out the train, and shoot him because he's defending Zero again. Um like in the beginning or toward the beginning of the film. That's why we have that scene where they're stopping and zero says, why are we stopping at a barley field again? Yeah. Um, yeah. Except that time the film is shifted to black and white, yeah. which is a very effective kind of uh filmmaker thing to do.
0: That's an- another uh, connection. Uh, if, the, if there really is one uh, to first reformed is the Gustav H segment is shot in four by three, the way first reformed is shot in four by three. That's maybe yeah. the only other example of a four by three movie in the last, however many years I can think of.
1: Yeah. Because I, um, I kind of had forgotten that and then I was playing it on my TV and it had the, you know, the edges cut off and I was like, Oh, mm-hmm. uh, but it, to sort of keep harping on this a little bit, there's the scene where, uh, Gustav is giving one of his, uh, sort of, uh, sermons to the servants sermon to the servants before they begin work that day uh and he's talking about rudeness and he says rudeness is merely the expression of fear people fear they won't get what they want the most dreadful and unattractive person only needs to be loved and they will open up like a flower (laughs) yeah (laughs) which is uh, you know it's kind of the credo he lives by and up until the end when sort of the culture shifts so much that the way he lives is no longer sort of tenable. It works and he gets away with a lot of things and it makes me think of the um, whatever the concierge network is called. That's not the word for it that he uses. The uh,
0: society of something keys. Yeah. Twi- something, something crossed thing. keys or twisted keys or something like that.
1: And, and, you know, so because they've dedicated their lives to this kind of um hospitality and and making sure that they everything is always just so and that you're civilized um it allows him and zero to escape and travel to, you know to where they're trying to meet this uh kind of uh, whistleblower guy played yeah. by uh met whatever his last name is the french actor
0: uh, i'm not sure um, before i forget i think um I watched this with Jensi, and she wanted me to point out that the society of the twisted key or crossed key or whatever the the hell it's called. uh, She said it it reminded her of the uh, twilight bark in 101 Dalmatians, the animated film Mm. where they're like, you know, they, they have a code (laughs) where the dogs bark to each, to, to each other yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a pretty good it's a pretty good call i think it's a good
1: uh, uh like it's a pretty classic kind of cinematic device of like yeah kind of deus ex machina kind of thing yeah there's this like structure in place to
0: communicate in times of emergency yeah uh anyway
1: it reminds uh, me of uh robin hood men in tights which part <laughs> the the ending of robin hood men in tights when uh robin hood and Maid marion are finally going to do it but the key for the chastity belt doesn't work so he's like call the locksmith (laughs) that's what i I, when i was a kid i thought that was like the greatest movie ever made doesn't hold up very well as you can imagine did you say hey blinken no did you say abe lincoln Um, oh yes i said it backwards yeah uh,
0: speaking of gustav h's sermons one thing that I find very interesting about the movie is the uh, romantic poetry.
1: Yeah, that's and, and so rude. given
0: given the larger themes of of the movie of sort of dignity in the face of, I keep I keep wanting to say degradation. I think that's an okay word for what we're talking about: declining culture, declining civilization. Yeah, sure. um, I think romantic poetry is a very interesting choice uh, to have this character constantly repeating and evangelizing to zero and later to agatha um because in a way so so um i know you and i have may- maybe one of our favorite parts that we're always quoting is the part where uh willem defoe's character is about to <laughs> seemingly kill gustav H. he's is hanging on by his fingertips this. Uh, on the cliff yeah. and he's quoting some obscure poem and he says me thinks me breathes me last me fears and then zero comes out of nowhere and pushes him off the cliff and he screams holy shit you got him <laughs> right. uh, and 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 I've I've always thought that part was so funny that I've never really been able to think about it uh, yeah. but I, I noticed uh, in, a, in a couple of his movies of uh, Anderson's movies there's Uh, humor uh some of the humor is about the kind of juxtaposition and overlap of kind of human domestic personal problems sort of petty problems with with uh more universal external beauty um, I, I know this sounds really vague, but I'll give you some examples. Uh, one example is, is the part in the Grand Budapest I was just talking about where so he he's he's often being interrupted uh, from his romantic poetry with very sort of pragmatic concerns right So he's reading uh, poetry to the employees of the Grand Budapest, but then they have to start
1: eating yeah you know,
0: because the it's 46 stanzas long or whatever. Oh well, yeah. When zero is uh,
1: reading his letter from prison, he's like, we should start with the suit because it's,
0: right. Right. Uh, but, but often he's, he's quoting poetry and the poetry gets interrupted with some sort of practical concern.
1: Yes. Um, or when zero it, is doing it, when they escape from the prison and he's like, uh, he's reciting the poem about how yes. wonderful he thinks Agatha and he's is. Like,
0: we have to go right now, but I insist that you finish this <laughs> yes. later, you know, right. Right. So so that is what I'm talking about. But also, if we can jump to the life aquatic real quick, uh, it's in a way that sort of humor is reversed where what's what's more front and center is the human drama. And that keeps getting interrupted by uh, especially uh, Bill Murray's character, Steve Ziss's fascination with the natural world. Where so he's like having a fight with his wife, El- Eleanor, and um, she's leaving because he's being an asshole. And they're like in the midst of this fight. And then he's like, oh, the sugar crabs are back, you know, <laughs> and and he looks and these, you know, crabs are fighting, really. He thinks they're mating, but they're like killing each other. Uh, but there's, I, I can't off the top of my head, I can't think of any more examples, but I know there are. I noticed several, especially in the life aquatic. Um, but all that to say, in Grand Budapest, the romantic poetry to me seems like a a very intentional choice about um, kind of choosing to view the world romantically despite your deeper knowledge of its degradation um, yeah you see what i'm saying
1: yeah and it kind of because uh, i'm thinking of moonrise kingdom and moonrise kingdom is also sort of complicated by the fact that it's, it's sort of about adolescence and and um sort of what you think love is when you're 12 or whatever um mm-hmm. but it's a thing where you have um Susie and why can't I remember his name um it's not Steve is it Sam Sam yeah there we go I knew it was an S uh so Sam and and uh and Susie who are you know talk about how deeply in love they are and they want to get married and all that sort of stuff but all around them their sort of family lives are are falling apart or just shit to begin with so you have Susie who keeps like th- having these issues where she like gets in a fight at school and all this sort of stuff. And Sam is in foster care and he like mm-hmm. lights a fire while he's sleepwalking, <laughs> he says, and that that sort of stuff. Which yeah. is, so it's like in their letters and in their sort of interactions, you get that these are two really sort of, you know, troubled kids. And they even have the joke of uh, Susie's parents have the book that's like how to deep with, deal with a deeply troubled child or whatever it's called. Yeah. Um, so it's a kind of thing where it's this kind of romantic sheen um over this sort of main narrative that we're following but also all around it you have sort of the the actual world that's full of all this pain and all this bullshit is is always kind of creeping in and encroaching in um kind of sort of symbolized by the storm that comes and sort of you know brings an end to all of this adventure that they're having
0: yeah i think you're hitting the nail on the fucking head there i think like this i did it (laughs) I think this is the, um, kind of the core of his movies is, is what I notice is that there's almost always in his movie, in Anderson's movies, a, a point at which the real world asserts itself, what we, the audience recognize as, as the real world. So he, he goes through these to, you know these great paints to create these artificial worlds and they're kind of you know that's where you get this twee and and you know all the aesthetic choices and the symmetrical shots and all this stuff and but even like the dialogue is kind of artificial and a little over the top and kind of nostalgic and um referential and just artificial all the way around. But there always comes a point when the real world is acknowledged and I'm just trying to think. So like in bottle rocket, it's probably when, uh, when Dignan hits Anthony with a screwdriver in the face, which is like maybe the first moment of like real violence. You see in this movie that's supposedly a crime movie.
1: Yeah. Um, in Rushmore, it's, it's when would it be when he like confronts the teacher and she kind yes, of pushes yes him.
0: and exactly when he sort of advan- makes advances on her and she pushes him down and then crucially for for all the jokes which are really good in Rushmore about like hand jobs and fingering <laughs> and, and things like job. that. You thought it was the aquarium? Nah. It was the hand job. You want to know something else? It was worth it. (laughs) That's one of my favorite parts. Anyway,
1: then she turns it around and says, well, what did you think was going to happen? Do you think we're going to have sex? And then she says, well, what if I give you a hand job without putting an end to all of this?
0: Yeah. Would you say that you fingered me? You know, and so and so that's exactly my point. She is acknowledging she is displaying her the characters but also thus the film's awareness of of that sort of paradigm of this sort of adolescent view of sex and and that sort of thing and and so it becomes self-conscious and it makes it an entirely different thing and so all the weird sort of quirky twee stuff we associate with his movies because they are interrupted and disrupted by the real world we we are forced to read them as like conscious choices, um, as like in a lot of ways, a form of rebellion against that real world. Um, I, I thought about, I, I've never read the full book, uh, Don Quixote, but I, I sort of know the archetype of it, you know, of this sort of, of the dreamer. Mm-hmm. And I thought a, a lot about that watching these movies, especially bottle rocket, um, because of that very reason that i just said it's, yeah. it seems to be this sort of conscious rebellion against this encroaching you know reality principle uh, I, I, like i'm saying as a
1: rebellion yeah and you have that kind of come out at the the very end of bottle rocket when dignan's in prison and they visit him and he's like oh well i have this plan for a breakout and get ready to make a run for it and then after a minute you kind of they realize that he's joking And it's sort of like the end of that sort of, you know, Don Quixote esque dreamer thing of these big schemes and the 75 year plan. See, I don't, I don't think it's the end of it. I think it is a,
0: a sort of redemption of everything you've seen before that. I think it's saying all of this shit was, was like, this was a (laughs) conscious sort of joke. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I'm glad you mentioned that scene because I have, I like took notes here, but it's kind of smudged. It was in my pocket for like three days. <laughs> uh, Dignan's joke in line about the prison escape shows his and their awareness of their quote, innocence, that their little crime games are intentional reactions to the emptiness of their lives. Um, uh, and, and a, another sort of aspect of all his movies I want to bring in is these sort of Salinger, J.D. Salinger ishness, um, because Bottle Rocket, especially, is kind of bookended with, uh, uh, a mental institution. Anthony has just gotten out of a mental institution Mm -hmm. and then the prison that, uh, you know, Dignan ends up in. Uh, so it starts with Anthony, you know, getting out of a mental institution, pretending to break out. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, um, but then he, he immediately sort of goes to his little sister, Grace, and Grace and Anthony have a very sort of Holden Caulfield Phoebe uh, relationship from The Catch in the Rye. Uh, and the themes are very similar. Like he's, Anthony's very off put by Grace's cynicism about her, yeah. you know, her sort of pragmatism.
1: Says he was in the uh, hospital for exhaustion, and she's like, You haven't worked a day in your life. How can you be exhausted? <laughs> right. But just that dynamic between them is very Catcher in the Rye,
0: I think. Um, But my larger point here is that a lot of Salinger's stories and, uh, you know, novels and stories are kind of about this confrontation between the individual and the larger society. And especially in the case of the Catcher in the Rye, the incompatibility of certain individuals with the larger society i was just listening uh on on youtube i found a an old uh, audio clip of william faulkner uh, uh reading something about advice to young writers and i was i was very pleased to hear him uh, recommend he was talking about some of the young writers he'd read and this was you know in like the late fifties, I think. And he had read recently at the, at that point, the catch on the rye. And he was very much a fan of it. And he said, uh, you know, it's Holden Caulfield is a, a young character who, uh, it, it's not that he's nihilistic and, and doesn't want connections. It's that he goes looking for human connection and, and finds no humans essentially. Um, anyway, I think, I think there's uh, a lot of connections between the, this sort of, uh, antagonism between the world and the individual in Anderson movies that, that is definitely present in Salinger stories, but also I think consciously, um, that Anderson, you know, makes a conscious homage to in his movies.
1: Well, you know what else, as far as we're going with like uh, literary connections, or I think it would be a literary connection, it kind of reminds me of the way George Saunders writes a little bit too. Um, mm-hmm. Just because it has this kind of overcoat of fantasy and weird shit happening. Um, this kind of candy shell of that that's over this sort of deep core of a bigger problem that's not being addressed because it's difficult or whatever it may be. So you instead sort of escape into this fantasy thing, kind of like Dignan with his plan and all that, and then sort of everyone's in on the joke, kind of. Um, mm-hmm. So you know you get Saunders writing these stories, and they usually involve a ghost or a, ser- or a number of ghosts. Um, so it's or a,
0: a, a theme park,
1: yeah, and, and so you get like these uh, this weird kind of what you think is the story but you but you kind of have to look past that at the core of what's happening um to sort of get to what the actual point of the story is so like sea oak is a story that's uh the grandmother dies and then she kind of comes back as a zombie with like magic powers but her body is decaying and so the family has to sort of deal with that but at the core of the story it's it's about sort of struggling to survive as a sort of low income family and how do you raise a child in that world and how do you uh you know what what are the steps you have to take to get out of that world right and the whole time the grandmothers like you have to you have to get out of here by this certain date or something bad going to happen and then they do and everything turns out fine because they sort of heed her advice but in the meantime all this crazy shit happens like my, the scene that i read it made me laugh out loud uh, <laughs> when i read it was uh, she comes back as a zombie and they just kind of prop her up in an easy, easy chair in the living room and at <laughs> night they hear her like making noises and like rustling and then they hear her like yell and she's like I'm so fucking powerful and then th- th- rips the door off the microwave with her mind <laughs> it's just like <laughs> this is beautiful and then like she dies at the end and her advice uh, which is also very comical to her her grandson who works at a hooters for men called joysticks or like you know hooters (laughs) but it's men uh her advice to him is you have to show your cock so you can make more money so you guys can move and it's really funny but at the core it's like you have to get out of this situation and at the end when she's um you know as the zombie she's dying for a second time it's this kind of dramatic scene where they're holding her and she's like i don't want to die again they're like oh we're gonna miss you and then she says, "Show your cock." She said, "Die and died again." Um, <laughs> and it's it's really funny, but it's also kind of like it's it's strangely heartfelt, and it has that kind of, you know, the, the life they live is not good. Like Sea Oak, the title of the story is after this like shitty, rundown apartment complex that they live in.
0: Yeah, that's um, what I was gonna say. Is if we ever if we ever do decide to do our uh, anthropo sentences, let's do Sea Oak because. I really like the idea of having, you know, this title "Sea Oak." Two very natural, yeah, you know, words uh, in their original meanings. Uh, you know, that refer to natural things. It's about a fucking apartment complex. Yeah, um, and so much of his work is about the appropriation of like. The appropriation of nature into this new, completely unnatural landscape, Um, and you see that mostly like in the like like I said in the theme park stories, which is like half of what he's written. Yeah. Um, And and there's what's I can't remember the title. There's a story about a wave pool.
1: Oh, someone someone drowning in a wave pool, which is exactly what I'm talking about. I think it's just called the wave machine or something it's got yeah. wave machine in it i think yeah uh, but yeah where the kid dies and it's again yeah, but
0: your but your your larger point is taken about uh, uh i i definitely see what you mean about like the style of saunders and anderson is similar in that maybe people talk more about their style uh but there are real sort of sincere stories happening Um, happening with that style Mm -hmm.
1: yeah and so it's it's really easy to get sucked into the you know the twee elements and the colors and the the sort of miniatures that are used and just be like oh Wes Anderson is just quirky for the sake of being quirky but he's really not like he's telling at times especially in Grand Budapest Hotel these sort of big sprawling stories with these like layers of depth to them and they're um,
0: and they're very and we've talked about this before. To me, uh, his movies, especially Grand Budapest, are very uh, rooted in uh, existential philosophy, specifically that of Albert Camus. Yeah. And this and this sort of uh, conscious rebellion against this absurd situation that you find yourself in. Um, sort of what we've been talking about the sort of Don Quixote it's it's Don Quixote, but it's, but it's conscious, uh, quixoticism or whatever you want to call it. It's like they're fighting the windmills, you know, but, but they know they're, they're self-aware. Um,
1: and that's why I like that, that quote from Gustave so much where he's, he's like, there's a, you know, a beacon of civilization in this slaughterhouse and then he starts to elaborate and he's like, oh, fuck it. Like, you, you get what I'm <laughs> saying. I don't need to go into it anymore. Yeah. The name of that story, by the way, is The Wavemaker Falters.
0: Ah. Uh, ah. Uh, yeah. I think we can officially endorse George Saunders.
1: He actually, uh, I don't maybe I've mentioned this to you in the past, but maybe not. He does long form <laughs> video interviews for GQ sometimes. And they're always with a musician, I think. So he did one with Jason Isbell, And then he did another one more recently with Jeff Tweedy for Wilco. Yeah. And he's a really good interviewer.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, So I would recommend they're just available on YouTube. You can watch them. Um, So we haven't talked about the Royal Tenenbaums yet. And I would like to, because that's my favorite Wes Anderson movie.
0: It's so fucking good. Um, I will say. Uh, let me. Uh, I, I've got my Salinger chapter open here. From I'm not. I'm going to fuck this guy's name up. It's like a classic of literary criticism from the fucking '60s. Radical Innocence, the contemporary American novel. Uh, Ihab Isan, I believe, is the guy's oh, name. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah.
1: I mean, I'm, I haven't read this article, but I know who that is.
0: Yeah, he's got a chapter on Salinger. Um, this, uh, Hassan is like a, uh, a very sort of aesthetically pleasing critic. Like he, he knows how to string a fucking sentence together. Um, he's a big sort anyway. of
1: theorist of postmodernism from what yeah. I know about him, but, but he,
0: he's he, the thesis of this book is sort of this, um, like, like the title suggests radical innocence and, and kind of this, uh, he calls it. The sub the subtitle of this chapter is it's just called J.D. Salinger rare quixotic gesture. Um, but what I notice reading this chapter uh, is that a lot of his assessment of Salinger is equally true of Wes Anderson. And one thing I, I saw is that there's a character in one of the Salinger stories. Uh, whose last name is Tannenbaum, which I thought was very interesting, given the, all the other connections to uh, Anderson's work. Which anyway. is,
1: it means, does that mean Christmas tree? It's holiday? like German for Christmas tree? Um, uh, I think so. Uh, I, yeah, I, it's Christmas tree. I'm pretty tree. sure it is because... Tannenbaum is. Tannenbaum is something he made up. Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I, I'm pretty sure like in fifth grade I had to sing a, a German version of Oh Christmas which Tree. Which Oh Tannenbaum. Oh yeah. Tannenbaum. Yeah, if that tells you anything about my childhood. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, here, here's what a few, would that here's tell us about your childhood? <laughs> well, that I was, you know, singing German Christmas songs. Uh, here's a few thoughts about J.D. Salinger that I think we should apply to uh, Wes Anderson from uh, it, Ihab hassan the response of these outsiders and victims to the dull or angry world about them is not simply one of withdrawal it often takes the form of a strange quixotic gesture the gesture one feels sure is the bright metaphor of Salinger's sensibility the center from which meaning derives and ultimately the reach of his commitment to past innocence and current guilt Um, here's another one Salinger's and I would argue Anderson's sentimentality however is not obedient to the New Yorker doctrine of sardonic tenderness which is really a way of grudging life emotions that the writer feigns to indulge but if sentimentality means a response more generous than the situation seems objectively to warrant then Salinger may choose to plead guilty And he would be right to do so for the spiritual facts of our situation, invite us to reconceive our notions of dramatic objectivity and the right kind of emotional excess nowadays can be as effective as the sharpest irony. Yeah. So there may just just because his movies are not sort of realist, you know, or they're not. Sort of quick witted in the like he says the sort of New Yorker way a sort of hip ironic way uh, doesn't mean that they are not getting at some sort of sincere important truth and in a lot of ways I think maybe the best example of this even though you said you wanted to talk about Royal Tenenbaums is uh, the Life Aquatic yeah where the uh, you know the big finale is like oh there actually is this jaguar shark you know uh which every time they mention the jaguar shark they say or whatever it is if it actually exists you know it's kind of a joke that anyone who mentions it says or whatever it is if it actually exists
1: yeah
0: uh and then it turns out it does exist and it's this very powerful moment um at the end and bombs <laughs> what about it it's good it's funny <laughs> But uh, everyone everyone sorry. knows Custer died at the Battle of Little Bighorn. What this book presupposes is, maybe he didn't. <laughs> it was written in a sort of obsolete vernacular. <laughs> um, and they wrote, wrote on in the friskelating dusk light. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love that. Uh, Eli Cash is yeah. maybe the best character. Yeah, By so the we way, can st- I, don't, I don't think I've mentioned I'm, I'm currently drinking um, – bloody mary's like that's a bloody mary you hear there uh in honor of richie tenenbaum that's his drink of choice yeah
1: and i will say like eli i think has the best lines in the movie um, or at least some of my favorite lines but R- richie's meltdown on the tennis court is maybe my favorite scene yeah where he's like oh he's taking his shoes off or he's taking sure. one shoe off strange day here (laughs) (laughs) um yeah just great stuff but we can kind of start with with eli i think because he, he he's kind of a deteriorating character right he's he's on drugs he's having this kind of meltdown and it's all because he has sort of put so much stock into this you know quixotic quest of of being like the the tenon bombs and, and uh, you know he has that the famous line where he says uh, I always wanted to be a tenon bomb and, and Royal says me too and that's kind of they connect over there <laughs> yeah but it's
0: it's uh, his face his like the emotions that Royal exhibits and the way it's shot is sort of uh, sort of pathetic like and not in an endearing way. You know, it's yeah. like, I always he says, I always wanted to be a tenenbaum. He says, me too, me too. But it's like this affectation. I feel like we're supposed to think yeah. it's, it's like, he's a little bit, it's like Anderson's a little bit embarrassed of that or, or he's sort of making fun of Royal in a way. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I always, I always remember that moment for some reason.
1: <laughs> but you know, but Eli's got the, that's why he writes his books that are poorly reviewed and they're written in this like, Really, just like overly wordy, uh, just like pretentious language, because he's trying to live up to, uh, you know, the the sort of legacy of the 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 Tin tenenbaum and geniuses. Yeah, um, he and he can't quite do it, so he has this like affectation of wearing the like frilled jackets and the cowboy hat and writing these big Western epics. Um, I remember hearing an interview
0: with I think it was Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson, who were who both wrote the movie uh saying eli cash's writing was supposed to be like a an exaggerated sort of ridiculous version of cormac mccarthy
1: and it it reads exactly like that in the brief yeah. excerpt yeah. that we get um except mccarthy will just use words that no one has used since like 1890 right uh, but eli cash seems to be just like you know beating it over the head with a thesaurus the whole time. yeah he
0: like uses spanish you know he's 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 writing in spanish and then he says things like shuttlecock and friskalating dusk light <laughs> yeah uh
1: and that makes his sort of uh descent kind of more i don't know like effective when it happens you know when he crashes the car into the house and and uh, all that stuff, and then, yeah, he has that moment where he connects with Richie and says, "I wish you would have done this for me when I was a kid." And the comedy is Richie saying, "Well, you didn't have a drug problem then."
0: And still would have meant,
1: a, still would have meant a lot. To yeah, me. It still would have meant a lot. Um, oh, I love that. It's just sort of not wanting to be exceptional so badly, which also comes out in uh, in Rushmore, um, mm-hmm. and in a, I'm sure in a few other places that I'm not thinking of. Um, Kind of zero in Grand Budapest, kind of aspires to that sort of being exceptional as a as a lobby boy. Um, Truly, yeah, and and it's just sort of that feeling of that is especially encapsulated in Eli of sort of being so obsessed with being the best or being recognized as being really good at what you do. Kind of uh, becomes your personality, and so you sort of have the pursuit of that instead of an actual personality that you Mm -hmm. can, you know, use to connect with other human beings. Right. It's sort of that quixotic quest sort of amplified to the point where it ruins your life.
0: Yeah. It's almost like a perversion of the quixotic quest. It's like, it's like you're using, you're sort of using and transforming that idea of this adventure quest for kind of repressed psychological reasons.
1: Yeah. And there's also that just the, I don't know, it's just a great character study because all of the characters are highly memorable. Um, But you kind of, what you get from the film being set when they're all adults and they're no longer exceptional children you get that kind of uh, talented and gifted pro- program syndrome that you hear about, you know, kids when you're little, they're like, Oh, you're in the talented and gifted program. You're special. And then it doesn't mean anything for your life. And so you're like, right. Oh, I thought I was super smart. And it turns out I work at Walmart now. Um, yeah. You know, it's like Royals talking to Margo and he says, I thought you were supposed to be a genius.
0: Yeah. Uh, so that's
1: what they used to say anyway. <laughs> yeah. and, and they all kind of have that, uh sort of you know the the bloom is off the rose sort of thing going on um and so royal in a lot of ways is kind of maybe the most authentic one just because he's a jackass bastard man um who just floats back into their lives uh but he has no real pretension about it yeah
0: and the the sort of culture in grand budapest is what the family is in Royal Tenenbaums. It's this former, former glory, how, how to behave, you know, it within this world that was formerly glorious and spectacular and genius or, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so the, the Tenenbaum children and parents are, are trying to sustain the illusion in their in their fall from grace the same way gustav is trying to you know sustain the illusion of decency uh, yeah. amidst war
1: yeah and then even uh steve zisu right in life aquatic he's not what he once was in a lot of the movies exactly. sort yeah. of the glory yeah. days or about you know people reminiscing about the glory days um so, yeah, that idea of, of being once great but no longer great. And even in Grand Budapest, it gets um, even more amplified because we're looking at a different time period. So we get yeah. the Grand Budapest, when it's not at its height, it's already starting to decline. And then yeah. later on, it's in full decline, and it's about to be shut down. And then later on, it doesn't exist anymore.
0: Yeah, and uh, uh, to that point in... The Life Aquatic, when they go to the uh, island to rescue the Bond Company stooge, uh, it's been destroyed by like a hurricane. Mm -hmm. And it used to be this sort of touristy, you know, resort. And Steve Zisu says his first wife, Jacqueline, and he had their honeymoon there. And he sort of looks around and you see this sort of squalor, you know, nature taking over this place. And he says, things are pretty different now, you know, yeah. uh, which, which means, you know, literally, physically, it, this place looks different. But also his life is just so, <clears throat> you know, unimaginable compared to what it used to be. Uh, yeah. But yeah, like, like you said, I, or like I said, I think you are you're onto something when when you talk about the um, sort of fall from grace or or formerly great conditions uh being dealt with in the present that that to me seems to be like the major theme of wes anderson movies
1: yeah that just that that scene that's the the leeches scene right, <laughs> leeches, everyone. No
0: Check one else swamp got hit. Leaches. Nobody else got hit. I'm the only one. What's the deal?
1: Great, <laughs> um, but yeah, and that and that kind of falls into, um, you know, theme, themes of things we talk about on, on the, the show regularly, uh, which is this idea of you know, climate change on its current trajectory is not avoidable, it's not reversible. So instead, in lieu of any sort of like magic bullet, we have to figure out new ways of of living and being in the world uh, with this knowledge and then in the future with changes that will come along with, you know, that knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's sort of, we we do live in a time period and, you know, I'm not going to say we're unique because I feel like every time period is living in a time of great change and turmoil, but now our change in turmoil seems heightened because one we're experiencing it and because two it's on a global uh sort of irreversible almost you know potentially extinction level quality um so it's just a question now of well how do you you know how do you live in the uh the wreckage kind of like a uh, royals uh tombstone right he died saving uh, his family from a shipwreck or whatever
0: that's a perfect example of this theme yeah
1: uh, so yes, yeah, it's just like the, it's not that the boat is wrecking. It's that we're in the wreckage. Now, what do we do? Like, how do we, how do you salvage anything? I'm just going to stick with this ship metaphor.
0: I, I think it's a good metaphor. Honestly, um, it reminds me of the, of a line in, uh, Scorsese's, the departed where, Jack Nicholson's character asks some random guy in a bar that he knows, like, "How's your mother?" And he says, "Oh, she's 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 not doing well. She's on her way out." And he says, "We all are. Act accordingly." <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and that's sort of a cynical, you know, funny line in The Departed. But in in these movies, it's a it's sort of a similar suggestion. It's just they have a different definition of what accordingly means. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, there is this inevitable decline and what, what is, you know, how do you behave in this declining world? Um, and at no point, I think we should make it very clear at no point in any of these movies, is there a suggestion that you should take refuge in nostalgia? Um, you know, in terms of a uh, make America great again, sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, there is. You know, Gustav H, especially, is not, he is trying to sustain the illusion with a marvelous grace, but he is not, sustaining the illusion is different than lying to yourself about the past. Uh, like I said, he is fully aware of the current situation. Um, and, and he's not taking refuge in some illusion about the past uh, to to sustain The illusion that he is like, Mm -hmm. you know, psychologically okay, which, which he's, you know, probably isn't based on some of the, you know, information we get about him, how he refuses to talk about his past and he, you know, takes his meals alone in his, you know, servants quarters in the hotel. And, um, there's all these indicators that he is sort of not okay. Okay. But it's just sort of pretending to be and that there's a sort of uh, respectability in that uh, in that pretending.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I was just trying to think of uh, I had something and then I got caught up in what you're saying and I kind of forgot what, <laughs> what it was. Well, well
0: I got uh, I got sidetracked earlier. What I was I was going to read some, uh, as you might have guessed already, Curtis White. Uh, When we were talking about romantic poetry Mm -hmm. that Gustav H. is always quoting, I wanted to read some thoughts uh, from Curtis White about uh, romanticism. And so here's a few thoughts about romanticism to apply to Gustav H., you know, his penchant for quoting romantic poetry. Uh, The nature of art, in fact, the nature of Western civilization, changed radically with the birth of that social and artistic movement we call Romanticism. It was Romanticism that first challenged the emerging dominance of the scientific and rationalist worldview. It was Romanticism that first saw how this worldview would tend toward ever greater social regimentation. And it was Romanticism that first claimed that art could provide an alternative a counterculture, if you will, to both science and present society. And then later he says, um, Romanticism offered a revolutionary and enduring alternative to being absorbed by the culture into which you happen to be born, alienation. And then he sort of explains this alienation. He says, I don't belong anywhere in my own world. In fact, I see this world for what it is, and it is shameful. In place of this world, I feel something nobler within me that poets and philosophers, not soldiers, must make real. The Romantics refused to be mere creatures of a fallen culture. They would be heroes. They would be free. They would create themselves. Uh, so two things there. I think uh, that phrase, creatures of a fallen culture, is very Uh, applicable to wes anderson's movies but i also think that last line they would create themselves about the romantics uh sort of hints at that sort of Camus type philosophy i mentioned earlier that i think you could argue is also in 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 these movies
1: yeah and i I just kind of i just finished a uh audio book i guess it was a lecture series on a audible you can buy the great courses you know those oh yeah yeah yeah. and uh, i bought the one or i had a credit and i got the one about transcendentalists and i listened to all of it and it kind of reminds me of that too because you know transcendentalism and romanticism are kind of strongly connected in a lot lot of ways yeah but one of my favorite parts of that lecture like episodes i guess you'd call it of that lecture was when he was talking about these utopian projects like brook farm and Fruitlands and these places that these transcendentalist uh, idealist utopian thinkers would start and then they would sort of inevitably fall apart. Like they would do really well for a little while and then they would fall apart for some reason. Um, one of those reasons being that usually the men would go off and think big thoughts and the women were left to like churn the butter and shit. Um, <laughs> so that, that was, you know, one thing it, but, but that's kind of when you talk about being optimistic or utopian or whatever, that's what people think of. They think of like, utopian community that will never work therefore why should we even try but then you you come up to, up to sort of more uh self-creation type scenarios like you're talking about so i think of, of walden and the fact that thoreau lived at walden for two years and people think that like he was some hermit out in the woods forever and he wasn't far from the city and all that sort of stuff um, but what he's trying to do is sort of start kick off this way of thinking where you go out on your own and find your own Walden find your own way of living in the world and seeking you know higher knowledge and trying to live more in harmony with the place that you inhabit and all that sort of stuff um, and he's not saying let's all move to the woods and be hurt he's saying you need to find your own way of doing that or at least that's kind of the, the reading I like to go with um, but it goes to this idea of, of, of self-creation not just of you know, creating yourself, but trying to create a better place around you. Right. So that's what Gustav does for sure. Through just like force of will and empathy, he's able to sort of go around and make this sort of world of the Grand Budapest Hotel, a place that people want to inhabit and they want to be a part of it. Um, And it's this kind of bubble of, you know, decorum and, and stuff in this greater world that isn't at great turmoil right and it's sort of uh, emphasized when zero brings him the paper and the headline is war declared or whatever and then way down lower it's that the uh, Tilda Swinton's character has died and that's mm-hmm. sort of we skip the headline about the war and we go straight to that because we're more concerned with Gustav's story as opposed to you know this world war Two scenario that's happening
0: yeah that's an interesting thought yeah you are sort of in that scene it's weird how it's like Anderson saying look the wars starting but then the story saying oh look the the old woman died yeah, and when the train like,
1: stops you, he's like why are we stopping <laughs> and then it's like oh yeah the war right uh, but yeah. the, the thing I was going to say earlier that I kind of forgot about was a uh, um, it's kind of a weird analogy that he uses uh, but Gustav is talking about why he keeps sleeping with these old women and he's talking to zero and he says, you know, when you're younger, it's all these like
0: fillet, all steaks. These fillet
1: <laughs> steaks. He's like, you get older, you have to eat the other bits, but it's okay because I like those bits. <laughs> and, uh, the
0: cheaper, the cheaper cuts. Yeah. Really uh,
1: which is, you know, kind of misogynistic, I guess. But his point is that like, yes, I, I like that. Like, it's not that I'm doing it because, because it's my only option. Like I actually enjoy, you know, having mm-hmm. sex with these old women and you know, Tilda Swin's character he says she was dynamite in the sack, by the way. And Zero's <laughs> like, she was eighty-three. I've had older. And it's just sort of um a kind of raunchy uh example of this idea of um sort of creating this reality around you or creating this way of being in the world where you are able to not only survive but kind of thrive uh in spite of everything that's going on around you that would suggest otherwise.
0: Yeah. Um, I, 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 see that, but I'm sort of distracted by the, uh, you know, the, the sex scenes in grand Budapest. And it's making me think about the, something I noticed in, in binging the Anderson movies is <clears throat> this, uh, weird sort of, uh, politically incorrect uh tendency he has where at least a couple of these movies uh grand budapest and life aquatic i know for sure drop the drop the f-bomb oh yeah uh and you know in, in very interesting ways and uh, maybe maybe a great line indicative of of this sort of anti-pc sort of thing is uh in the darjeeling limited the um i don't i don't know what the politically correct term for the woman who's like serving the snacks on the train uh i don't know it's not a it's not a a train attendant but the the train equivalent of a flight attendant uh what's his name? Jason Schwartzman's character, Jack Whitman sees her one time and just says, I want that stewardess. (laughs) Right. And so just to like say to, to phrase that you want to, you know, have sex with someone that way, like I want her is like kind of offensive, but then to use the word stewardess, (laughs) you know, which is, you know, fallen out of favor to say the least. Um, seems like a very deliberate choice and i and i obviously i don't think like wes anderson is like oh fuck you know political correctness he's obviously you know using it in some way especially to comment on the character's kind of relative social position because the all the brothers and the darjeeling limited are like absurdly wealthy and isolated and all that sort of thing
1: yeah and- but uh
0: Sorry. Uh, yeah, that's all I got. Oh, go
1: ahead. Say in, And, you know, this. I don't want to sound like I'm trying to, to justify it in any kind of way, but in Grand Budapest, it's because it's uh, Adrian Brody's character, Dimitri, right, who is yeah. cartoonishly evil. He even has, like, the, the goatee. <laughs> um, so him saying it sort of, it's and it's like his first line, I think. I think the first time we hear him speak, he he calls Gustav that. Um, and yeah. so immediately you're like, oh, he's the bad guy. Like we're not supposed to identify with him at all. And then later he's a member of the the ZZ, like, which is basically the SS because it's like the stand-in for Nazis. Um, right. And so it's, it's like immediately like, oh, he's the bad guy. But in Life Aquatic, it's a little bit weirder. Yeah. Because Hennessy is not really the bad guy
0: no he's the nemesis you know in quotes yeah uh but then as you you know as steve zisu learns his lessons you realize that this guy's you know just just another guy
1: yeah which makes Um, it weird to sort of square that and you know he hits the dog and we've talked about before like you don't harm pets especially dogs (laughs) in films unless you're like the bad guy
0: Right. In a in a weird way, there is some element of just like quirkiness to it. It's like so unexpected. Um. I I don't really know what to do with it in in the life aquatic, and and at the same time, I don't want to be one of these people who's just like, you know, what some people call the PC police, where it's like, oh. You know, I've heard from from TV and the internet that you're not allowed to say this, and so I'm going to criticize someone for saying it. Uh, I don't think it's that simple, but I, but I'm also just sort of confused and like I, I don't want to be these people who are just like I think Wendell Berry calls them accusers. You know, he he sort of distinguishes between like critics and accusers, and how a lot of what passes for criticism now is just like people accusing uh, writers or artists of various kinds of like breaking the sort of un- unwritten rules un- uh, of political correctness. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, I, you know, I don't want to get into all that, but I, I, I'm i just very interested in his use of, of those phrases uh, that are so clearly... Uh, acknowledged as sort of not PC uh, to to the to the degree that they have to be there intentionally, and, and the only question is like, what is the intention?
1: Yeah, and you know we're not we're not trying to to cancel Wes Anderson, um, but <laughs> uh, you know I think I think our reaction I like to think it was the right one, which is not to be not to shoot from the hip and be like. It's unforgivable but to be like why is it there like clearly it's a it's a conscious choice and it's not played off like uh you know some like 90s biodome-esque movie where they just throw it in because it's "Hmm, it's funny but there's got to be some sort of reasoning you would think for it being there even though right in in some
0: ways it's there for the exact opposite reason of the biodome sort of you know 90s comedy sort of thing it's it's the exact opposite it's like it's it's because wes anderson knows about that whole thing that he knows that he can't use it and therefore he
1: does yeah
0: you know what i'm saying yeah
1: so that's why it's like this very sort of kind of twee looking movie that gets nominated for best picture and it just has that in it in like a random moment where you would never expect it to happen. Um, And also sort of, uh, you know, he he uses weird little uh, raunchy things too, that are kind of similar. So when they take boy with apple off the wall, they put up the like (laughs) Japanese sex painting. (laughs) Yes.
0: Um,
1: There's weird little things like that, that that pop up and, and, you know, Gustav with his like random uh, profanity that he drops. Um, Yeah. Stuff like that. Um, but he-
0: I, I love the moment in uh, the Darjeeling limited when they've been kicked off the train and they first encounter the three Indian children who they try to save when they, you know, get swept down the river. Uh, but the first time they see them trying to cross the river on this like rope, uh, Owen Wilson's character, Francis, just points at him and says, look at these assholes. <laughs> There's like three, like eight year olds, you know, it's, it's sort of like in uh, the life aquatic when they're escaping with the bond stooge from, uh, from the Island Mm -hmm. and they're sort of running towards the boat and Steve sees this little like six year old kid just like chilling on the beach. And his first reaction is to just hold up his like harpoon gun or whatever to shoot him. And the bond company's dude has to like stop him from shooting this little kid. He's like, "No, he's a friend."
1: Well, yeah, like the you know they kill the pirate and they're having the ceremony, and the Hennessy boat comes up behind him, and I forget. holy shit, son of a bitch! <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then he's like, "Throw this over the other side." <laughs> um, there are those like weird moments like that that are very and like when in Rushmore, Max cuts, Blooms breaks, yeah. He like, gets arrested for it. There are those like weird dark moments in there. But um, back to this idea of, of uh, this kind of question of is Wes Anderson politically correct, There's a, um, which is not, a, I'm not going to try to answer it, but he did get into some trouble for his movie that we haven't talked about yet, uh, which is Isle of Dogs, mm. um, because people were saying that it was, some people, uh, some reviewers were saying it was cultural appropriation. That it was uh, kind of like a, just a random hodgepodge of stereotypes about Japan. Um, which, you know, you can argue that if you, if you so wish. I'm not here to do that. Um, but uh, Isle of Dogs also has a kind of weirdly sort of ecological slant, especially when it comes to uh, non-human animals. Uh, in relationship between man and, and other animals, specifically yeah. with the dogs in the film, although it's a little weird because it's strictly politically motivated and it, it doesn't really address any of the sort of ingrained biases that we have as you know the dominant species on the planet.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking if there's if there's a an offensive moment. In Wes Anderson movies, it's when he uses uh, music that could be categorized as British Invasion uh, in the Darjeeling Limited, which takes place in India.
1: Yeah. But then again, he uses that in all of his movies, right? So it's like, yeah, but it's it's like, this is India. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Um, So I don't know, weird little things like that that are, you don't know if they're like overlooked or like I I don't want to think that they're there purposefully um, as like a (laughs) check this out kind of thing right Um, no I I,
0: a lot of his music choices seem to be very intentional Um, probably my favorite use of music in his movies is in the life aquatic where you have this sort of quirky thing of uh, the actor Sue George performing David Bowie songs mm-hmm. in Portuguese, and it's like, oh, that's you know, that's kind of cool. That's kind of quirky. But what's wh- what I love about it is how the movie sort of creates a musical context uh, for for larger thematic purposes, in, in sort of in order to break that context to transcend that context for larger thematic purposes. So we, we grow accustomed to the music being David Bowie or Sue George performing Portuguese, David Bowie. Um, and and we get used to that. And then out of fucking nowhere at the end, when, like I said, there, you know, there actually is this, you know, the great white whale, the, the Jaguar shark, um, out of nowhere we get this sigur rose song that's just beautiful and and not quirky at all you know it's so yeah. sincere and just kind of objectively beautiful yeah um, and, and that's sort of the point you know like he creates this context of quirkiness in that film in order it, specifically in order to transcend it with that very sincere piece of music at the end
1: yeah and it, it it's a different kind of thing, but similar sort of move in uh, Royal Tenenbaums when Richie tries to kill himself. Absolutely. And they play yeah. uh, Needle in the Hay by Elliot Smith.
0: Exactly. Before that, fit, we heard the Beatles and the and Rolling Stones. Yeah, like
1: Ruby Tuesday used for Margo and that sort of stuff. But then it's, right. here's an Elliot Smith song.
0: Exactly. And, and that obviously that is the moment that we were, we were talking about those moments where the real world sort of enters into these, you know, hyper constructed, you know, artificial worlds that he creates. That's mm-hmm. definitely the moment in the Royal Tenenbaums, but you're exactly right. The music, uh, is used very similarly where we are been, a we've been made to feel accustomed to this kind of, uh, nostalgic, uh, you know, I don't even know how to say it, just like general world where everybody knows the Beatles, everybody knows the Rolling Stones. And then out of fucking nowhere, we get this intensely dark scene with Elliot Smith, this American kind of underground, relatively still unknown, you know, in, in 2001. Um, I guess he was sort of known because he had been on the uh Goodwill Hunting soundtrack, mm-hmm. but is nowhere near the Rolling Stones, you know. Um, so yeah, I, I think his use of music is is, is pretty cool in, in that respect.
1: And uh, I don't I don't know if you caught this. Um, I, I did just because I'm a big fan of the song. But in uh, Moonrise Kingdom, Bruce Willis's character, the the sheriff or whatever he is, uh, yeah. he kind of has a, a a theme. Like he's always listening to Hank Williams yeah and specifically yeah. uh the song colidia and it's the song that plays when, when sam is kind of making his way you know in the canoe to find to find Susie, that sort of thing uh-huh. um but i just thought it was kind of a it was interesting because that song are you familiar with that song at all uh, i don't know it. i don't think so so colidia it's it's a it's a weirdly poetic country song that hank williams put together but it's about a uh cigar store indian you know like made out of wood uh-huh. and uh he's in the window of the shop and he's looking across to the other shop and there's like a a female statue or painting or something and he's in love with her the the object but he can't tell her because he's immobile and then one day she gets you know bought or something and is gone and it like breaks his heart <laughs> so you, you get that sort of interesting kind of parallel with bruce wilson's character who is you know in love with francis mcdormand's character who's married to um to uh bill Bill murray the the lawyer couple um and it's that kind of thing you know and sam even says you know uh, were you ever in love and he says yeah but she didn't love me back it's a sort of a nice like musical parallel and a good sort of kind of like a leitmotif for his character because anytime he's driving or when he's hanging out with sam in his his like mobile home or rv or whatever it is he lives in uh, his little house, uh, Hank Williams is playing in the background.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Um, he uh, Speaking of music in these movies, he always seems to know how to end a movie with the right musical choices. Uh, yeah. I'm thinking especially of Rushmore with yes. uh, Ooh La La by the Faces. Yeah. Just a great moment.
1: Yeah, he, I mean, he's again. That's one of those like things he's known for is the musical cues, which is not Bottle Rocket doesn't really have them, if I remember correctly.
0: Um. Well, I, I remember hearing that he wanted to have a Bob Dylan song in the in the final sequence oh, but, with Dignan, uh, sort of slow motion walking into the prison, but yeah. uh, couldn't get the rights yeah, to it. And surprising. I think it's I think it's the Bob Dylan bob dylan song wigwam that was used in the royal tenenbaums Mm. um that he originally wanted in that scene but i mean there's some it's sort of like almost like kill bill sort of neo-western type uh song that's playing just 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 music no words when dignan is walking into the prison uh but there's some uh There's Rolling Stones in uh, the sequence where Dignan's being chased by the police through the warehouse, Uh, which which reminds me. There's I've noticed all kinds of like weird symmetry and or synchronicity in in some scenes and in a lot of his Anderson's films. Uh, Here's a weird one that I don't. There's probably some sort of blog about this, but. so Andrew Wilson, the other Wilson brother, his character in Bottle Rocket, they refer to as Future Man. Weirdly, I don't that's never explained why they just call called Future Man. I think his name is John Um, uh, but they call him Future Man. And then later, when Dignan is being chased through the warehouse, uh, this song by the Rolling Stones is called 2000 Man. And mm-hmm. then in the Life Aquatic, towards the end, right before uh, Owen Wilson's character Ned or Kingsley Zisu uh, dies, the Scott Walker song "30th Century Man" plays. Uh, so I like—I don't know what the fuck to do with that. <laughs> future Man, 20th Century Man, like or da Vinci uh, 2000 Code. Man and 30th Century Man. Trying I
1: like tell us about the why? future. I don't know. I mean, well, I don't know. I don't know. With Life Aquatic, you could maybe make some point about, uh, you know, Ned slash Kingsley was supposed to sort of represent the future of the, you know, Zisu line or whatever. Uh, maybe some yeah, sort of hinting in that direction, but I, I have, the, I have no idea.
0: Here's here's another weird parallel. Um, so. Probably my favorite scene in Fantastic Mr. Fox, which I don't – have we even mentioned that one
1: yet? No, not yet, uh, which is a, weird because it's kind of the most ecologically minded.
0: That's a. I love that movie. Uh, anyway, when Cousin Christofferson comes and he's clearly lonely and um, sad and uh, Mr. Fox's son – what's his name? ash ash is being rude to him because he's like jealous of him because he's an athlete (laughs) Uh, he's being mean to him and he Kristofferson is like under the under the little table where the train set is and he's crying and even though ash has just been mean to him he hears him crying and he feels sorry for him and he climbs down out of the bunk bed And turns the train set on, and they both just sort of watch it go around. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, that's like one of the saddest fucking things I've ever seen in a movie. Um, It just like hits me every time. It's like
1: it's like Raymond Carver wrote that scene. It's just like so (laughs) much goes unsaid.
0: But but uh, next time you watch Royal Tenenbaums, the the night you know when all the Tenenbaum kids are back in the house for the first time, uh, Chaz Ben Stiller's character. Is like making beds, uh, getting the beds ready for his kids. Aussie, uh, was it Uzi, Ari, and Uzi? I think the names. Yeah. Are. And uh, the one on the top bunk, uh, uh, Chaz is sleeping on the floor, and and the the kid in the top bunk like crawls down out of the down the ladder off the top bunk and sleeps next to his dad, and it's just like framed in the same way as that shot in fantastic mr fox and it's just like i don't know it just seems like he's recreating similar things over and over Uh, and there's probably you know four or five more examples of these things i've noticed but i don't really know what to do with them
1: Well, like the you mean like bed stuff specifically because i think like moonrise kingdom you see the married couple in the separate beds kind of represent the sort of separation between them as opposed to Sam and Susie who sleep in the tent together. And Sam's like, I might wet the bed later. I just thought you should know.
0: (laughs) I hate to have to bring this up. Yeah. Yeah. So Um, it's it's kind of
1: like weird uh, because a bunk bed is, is designed to, to sort of negate the kind of intimacy you could have for sleeping in the same bed with a person. Yeah. So to sort of come down from it sort of is this reversal of that. I don't know, I think, it, I think it's interesting. I hadn't really thought of it that way. Yeah. But the fantastic Mr. Fox scene is just sort of, it's indicative of what I think maybe the most important thing that Wes Anderson sort of advocates for as a filmmaker, which is just a very kind of human empathy with one another. Because um, there's that scene that's really great. That's a sort of big theme in Grand Budapest is you know the whole thing of people are rude because they're afraid they won't get what they want. So you have to sort of, you know, treat them well and all that sort of stuff. And the way that he treats zero, even though he's a dick at that one point, both times when the authorities try to like take him off, he stands up for him and like refuses to let them take him. Um, And, you know, it comes up in the other movies, like at the end of Rushmore, um, you know, when uh, Max says, well, no one got hurt. And the teacher says, well, no, you did. And he's like, no, I'm fine. It's that weird sort of. I didn't get hurt that bad.
0: Even though you're also, because Max is 15, you're also sort of invited to think that he just sort of said that so that, you know, so that he could say he didn't get hurt that bad. Yeah. Which is, which is not that bad, you know, because he, he's learning to want to be selfless
1: in a way. Yeah. And then, you know, Royal really with Tenenbaums, it has the whole, you know, wrapping things up at the end when, you know, they finally sort of pay attention to Cash and sort of to Eli and sort of uh, bring him into the fold a little bit. It, you know, it took him crashing the car into the house for it to happen, but it, it kind of happens. Um, and, you know, they, they sort of reconcile with Royal and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's sort of in a to be the children what was it the the children of a fallen culture or something like that creatures
0: of a fallen yeah to be these
1: creatures of a fallen culture to then be able to connect or in a lot of cases reconnect with people on a very sort of you know basic emotional level i think is something that wes anderson is saying is, is is important is kind of key to existence
0: yeah and that's to me what's so powerful about that final scene in the life aquatic when they, you know, they see the Jaguar shark and everyone sort of leans in and puts their hand, you know, on his shoulders. Yeah. It's just like, so it almost makes you cringe. It's so sincere. And, uh,
1: yeah. And he invited and, them and all kind of, to come and with kind him. Of
0: trite in a way, but it's like, it like, cuts through the kitsch of it uh, yeah
1: and before he goes he he said he like gets everyone else to come with him to sort of go see this shark right it's the first time that he sort of you know wanted other people to sort of pursue it with him anybody other than the ned and so they're all yeah. packed into the little ship
0: there's also something uh i think related to this theme of of sort of sustaining the illusion with a marvelous grace uh to in the life aquatic we learn from eleanor uh angelica houston that you know she sort of confides to um jane winslet richardson played by kate Blanchett, yeah. <laughs> uh the reporter that uh zisu is you know she says he shoots blanks like he can't get a woman pregnant uh and so we know that Ned is not Steve's son, and yet in the in a at the very end, when he's showing this new documentary in Italy, uh, he uh, he says, "This one was my son." And He's talking about you know Ned's signal on the uh, or Ned's sign on the insignia, uh, and so there's some, I think there's something to that in this like like truth is not the ultimate truth in a way. Yeah. Uh, you know, what is like factually true is not the measure of things in some, in some way. Um, which is what I'm saying is that's sort of what Gustav is getting at in a lot of, in his project to sustain the illusion.
1: Yeah. And then even zero, um, who, you know, maintains the hotel and is living there and you know at the time of jude law's character it's all he has left because it's implied that the country has sort of fallen into soviet rule and all of his land and fortune has been sort of absorbed into the state and he's been allowed to keep the grand budapest as like the last vestige of that Mm -hmm. um and so the writer's like why why is this what you wanted to keep and he says well because i I keep it for agatha right and it's Mm -hmm. that sort of idea of you know, she died of the, the Prussian grip, which is this disease that ki- killed millions, right? And the thing that's sort of said fleetingly, it's like, silly little disease, and today we treat it in a week, but in those days, millions died. Yeah. Um, and so it's a sort of, it's a lot that they hit you with really quickly because you think, oh, happy ending, right? But no, Gustav gets drug, drug off the train and shot. Agatha dies of this disease, and his child with Agatha dies of this disease, And so he's literally like living off this kind of nostalgia of just being in the grand Budapest and sort of remembering what it was like, and sort of remembering his his lost love and all this sort of stuff. Um, But then you know, like we talked about, that's not the the end of the story. The end of the story is the girl on the bench in the cemetery reading the book. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's this weird. I don't know. It's just like a. It's a very again very sincere place to end the movie that is not where you expect to end up when you're at the beginning and it's this weird kind of almost slapsticky thing
0: yeah and and the grand budapest like i said i think briefly earlier is to me feels like the most mature film and not i mean it's a very confidently made film like i, I don't think there's any sort of Doubt. It doesn't feel like Anderson is like unsure about what he wants anything to look like or sound like or be like. Um, but just in the themes, um, there's just no missteps. There's no uncertainty. It's just this is uh, a very confidently made film. And it's there is just this heart of darkness to the story. And like that is the point that. That, uh, you know, the the point that Gustav is making about sustaining the illusion of decency in this barbaric slaughterhouse once known as humanity is this, you know, similarly represented by a movie about war and death uh, being a Wes Anderson movie, you know, being goofy and having, you know, silly jokes and silly sets and that sort of thing. The you know the filmmaking to the substance is uh, mirrored in the themes of like the you know uh, decency in the face of absurd destruction.
1: Yeah, that's why weirdly I think if if a director was going to make some sort of realistic leaning film about living in a future where the climate is, is degrading and and all these disasters are happening. I think it would be really interesting to see Wes Anderson make that film as opposed to, you know, a director where it's going to be 100%, you know, kind of earnest and maybe heavy handed at times to see Wes Anderson sort of take it on and have that sort of, that sort of a, that sort of panache, (laughs) right? uh, (laughs) Yeah. To, yeah. to sort of not be afraid to be sort of silly and playful because that core message at the, at, at the center is always going to be there as like an anchor to sort of keep you in that, well, this, that mood.
0: This may sound like a kind of ridiculous comparison in some ways, but I, in, in thinking about this theme, I thought a lot about melancholia, large lunch fears, mm-hmm. melancholia and the ending where, Kirsten Dunst's character, uh, uh, Justine, is building this cave or teepee. Uh, It looks like a teepee, but I think they call it a cave. You know, she says she has the magic rocks because she's trying to sustain or create this illusion for the little kid Mm -hmm. uh, in the face of the end of the world. And so, I mean, obviously, those movies are extremely different in terms of focus and and aesthetics and all that sort of thing. But I think that theme of maintaining a kind of playful dignity and decency in the face of this inevitable disaster is, uh, is kind of similar. Maintaining playfulness uh, in the face of the absurd, I think, is the a major theme of the end of Melancholia and a lot of Wes Anderson's movies, especially Grand Budapest Hotel, but especially of uh, Albert Camus. Like that's sort of the myth of Sisyphus is that you have to be, you know, the the myth of Sisyphus is that you ha- uh, that Sisyphus is miserable as he, you know, pushes this rock up the hill continually. But uh, that that you can find sort of you you can find ways of making that uh, unending except by death uh, task of uh, pushing a boulder up a hill a meaningful even joyful uh, life
1: yeah so if you learn nothing else from this episode then learn that you need to uh you must imagine sisyphus smiling as Camus writes yes as he pushes the boulder up the hill and i think that's a, a pretty good place to stop i feel like we kind of came to a natural end for the first time ever Oh all that's right. Kinda, I feel like we were pretty well rounded and we came back around to Grand Budapest at the very end. Pretty proud of us.
0: Yeah, did, okay. So we did we mention every movie? We we, yeah, we barely did. talked about Isle of Dogs, which that's okay cuz that honestly that's 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 the worst one and that's not to say that it's bad, it's just
1: not as good as the other yeah, ones it, in my opinion. It's not I don't find it to be as memorable as the other ones.
0: I think earlier I called it worldly and I stand by that. It's like the most politically rooted of all his movies. Yeah. And it's just not what you expect uh, out of a Wes Anderson movie. And yeah. uh, it just it feels more, it just feels way more normal than the rest of his movies.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, watch them all. They're all good. They all have their redeeming qualities. But that one is definitely, for my money, kind of, you know, number 10 out of 10.
0: But uh, uh, Rushmore, Royal Tenenbaums, Life Aquatic, Grand Budapest are fucking classics.
1: Yes. Kind of just unassailable. Like watching clips of Rushmore and going back to being in high school and being obsessed with the movie. And just like, oh, it's, it's very, I don't know, nostalgia trips inside of nostalgia trips going on.
0: Yeah. Like I said, Jensi and I watched all these. And Bottle. Uh, so I have the wonderful Criterion edition uh of bottle rocket and i'd seen it a few times before but it'd been a while since i just sat down and just really paid attention to it Mm -hmm. and you know just didn't have it on in the background or something i like just watched it and i I laughed out loud several times especially uh when the car breaks down and on the side of the road towards the end and realizes that anthony has given all their money to Inez at the hotel Mm -hmm. and when he when he finds out he uh he thinks about it for a second you can see him just sort of the the rage starting to form and then he runs and picks up a rock (laughs) and throws it at the car kicks the car and screams pointless act
1: (laughs) (laughs) i really like the the early on in the movie when they're kind of uh Dignan keeps like having these tantrums and he's like you're out and you're out and I'm not even sure that I'm in and they like go into the kitchen no gang (laughs) they go into the kitchen to argue and he's like I forget the character's name he's like why does he get to have such a big kitchen (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah watch all the Wes Anderson movies his new one the the French dispatch I think it's called comes out next year sometime Hmm. um so next week we're going to begin something completely different. We've decided, kind of taking uh, up an idea from the Belcourt Theater in Nashville. We're going to do a, a Doctober,
0: which is not what you think it is. It sounds like it's going to be documentaries in the month of October, but it's actually just docking scenes from Pornhub.
1: Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna really get in there. Uh, no, it's yeah. documentaries in the month of October, and yeah, uh, it is. sorry, and so. We're going to start with kind of the, the documentary that started it all, which is 2006's An Inconvenient Truth.
0: I can just hear a bunch of like old school environmentalist hippie people like cringing when you say that this movie started it all.
1: <laughs> well, you know, as far as, as <laughs> 2006. No, yeah, that's I a really good point. But no, as far as like the uh, in mainstream culture as far as climate change is concerned this was kind of the spark for a lot of people um who weren't around in like the 90s for the the elf stuff and even further back right people that cared about it since you know 40 years uh, ago aware of biodome when that
0: cultural you know just behemoth hit us
1: (laughs) yeah so so yeah it didn't start at all but as far as Uh, Bringing climate change to a larger audience was kind of the first film that attempted to do that, did not succeed for the most part. And Al Gore caught a lot of shit and still does. For hey, you know what? You know what we should
0: do? So, we're gonna do an inconvenient truth and an inconvenient sequel. We should also watch all the South Park uh, (laughs) man bear
1: pig stuff, which is you know about Al Gore, especially now that they've recanted.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think we talked about that earlier, but we should maybe watch those episodes and just to have some sort of uh, pop culture, you know, interpretation of Al Gore uh, to to refer to. Yeah,
1: so that's what we'll be doing, and uh, we've got some other documentaries kind of in mind that we'll bring up before we do them. Um, So next week, An Inconvenient Truth and An Inconvenient Sequel, which has a subtitle that I don't remember, and that was from 2017. Uh, one last thing before we go, I want to give a, uh, we have a lot of listeners from random places. So I want to give a shout out to the state of Iowa, where we have a lot of listeners, weirdly. Um, Oregon as well, the state of Oregon. Um, and then a lot of listeners or a lot of listens, maybe from a single listener from the Netherlands recently, which is pretty Hell cool. yeah. um So again, th- this might be like one person in each state just listening a bunch. In which case, still shout out to you keep listening. Um, <laughs> but I just thought I would, I would mention that cause it, it seemed like a Oregon makes sense, right? Because it's kind of a, still a hotbed of like environmental action. And you know, when we talked about the eco credit or the eco terrorism episode, we talked a lot about the Pacific Northwest and,
0: uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that sort of that's stuff. sort of the, uh, in, in a lot of ways, a sort of Mecca of environmentalist thought in America. Yeah. Um, they're just sort of always ahead of the game out there
1: yeah so yep documentaries next week be there or be square uh poison ivy is real so watch your cock and balls out there and your labia and whatever else you might have
0: it's 2019
1: <laughs>